to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week, we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sam Collier and Sarah Cho. Uh, this week, we have a wonderful guest. His name is Daniel Levis. He is the author of nine books of fiction, nonfiction, and poetry. His first full-length play, Waiting for Godinez, was selected for the Playwrights Arena 2020 Summer Reading Series. Uh, Daniel was selected for Circle X Theatre Co.'s inaugural Evolving Playwrights Group, where he is adapting his 2011 novel, The Book of Want, with a planned Zoom reading uh, in 2021. By day, he's an attorney and makes his home in Southern California with his wife. And it's got some exciting news. Oh, <laughs> breaking news is so exciting. So uh, one of the things I did was I submitted uh, my play, Waiting for Gudinas, to a couple competitions. And I found out uh, very recently that um, the American Blues um, play competition, which is called the Blue Ink um, Award, uh, my play came in as a semifinalist, so I'm um, I'm delighted that um, that people in Chicago uh, who read my play uh, uh, liked it very much to uh, put me in that category, and they had like 820 submissions. And that's so. amazing! Congratulations! Amazing. Thank you, thank you. So breaking news, very exciting. If if you're not on Twitter or LinkedIn, <laughs> it's like this is brand new stuff. You heard it here first. <laughs> yes. Um, Awesome. Um, so one of our first questions we like to ask our guest is your earliest memory. I think it's because we're babies here. Um, <laughs> tell us your earliest memory. What was your life like before theater? Oh, gosh. So so folks um, know a little bit about me. I was born in Los Angeles in 1959. So I'm an old guy. And I was born in, in downtown LA. And I have lived here my entire life. So one of my earliest memories was I think it was three or four. Uh, we were at Disneyland, and um, the three little pigs were performing on a kind of little stage. And uh, being a rambunctious kid, I ran into the three little pigs, and they started to surround me and bump me with their big bellies. <laughs> and and I started crying. And and my my parents finally, uh, after laughing a lot at this pulled me out and said, see what happens when you do something like that. So that's one of my earliest <laughs> memories. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> do you feel like that changed the trajectory of your life? Uh, yes. Basically, it turned me into a lawyer and playwright. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so when I learned about you, I'm like, wow, you're, you have such an interesting background of being an attorney, a novelist. I mean – Let's like get into this. So before you got into playwriting, tell us a little bit about your life. Like where, where did you, where were you? Where were okay. you going? So, so <laughs> I, I grew up in a working class Mexican American community in, in um, LA. Um, it's called Koreatown now. Back then, back in the 60s and 70s, it was more considered um, Harvard Heights or Pico Heights, that area. Uh, those are the terms used by my parents. Um, and middle five kids. And um, even when there wasn't a lot of money in the house, my parents always made certain we had books. We always had our library cards. And my parents were very much into um, Mexican uh, culture and politics and literature and art and all, and all that wonderful stuff. So from an early, early age, um, they 
they brought to us um, culture. So throughout grammar school and high school and college, um, I um, I took uh, you know the opportunity to uh, be an artist, to write stories, to to work for journals. Um, in college at Stanford, I was the art director for the Stanford Chaparral, which is a humor magazine. And I drew cartoons. I had a staff of artists, and um, I wrote I wrote a lot of cartoons, um, including my most famous one-page cartoon strip um, version of um, The Legend of Oedipus Rex. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Amazing, <laughs> and which a lot with a lot of corny jokes in it. But um, and then. My senior year in college, I thought I wanted to go off and major and get a master's and PhD in English literature because that was my major. And I began to learn that people who did that, who wanted to go into academia, had to be willing to live in any state. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm a homeboy. I wanted to go back to L.A., born and raised in L.A. My family was there. So I, I, I was complaining to a friend of mine saying, I just I just can't do that. I you know, I can't see myself going to Texas or going to North Carolina or whatever for an academic job. And my friend very wisely said, why don't you just go to law school? Mm. And I said, well, what do you mean? Well, you like to write. So lawyers write. You want to help people. Lawyers help people. And I thought, that's a brilliant idea. So I applied to <laughs> law school. <laughs> <laughs> and I got into uh, a bunch of schools, including UCLA. And so I attended UCLA Law School. And while at UCLA, I, um, I became editor of the Chicano Law Review and did a lot of legal writing um, and very involved in, 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 um, in politics. And then eventually I ended up at the Attorney General's office after a short stint in um, private practice. And at the AG's office, um, I did land use and environmental enforcement and, and things like that. And then at age 39, uh, my wife had the fifth of what would be seven miscarriages. Uh, we, had, oh, wow. um, we had a child, uh, our son, Ben, who is now 30. And I was, I was really, I, I'll be honest, I was very depressed. I was very down. I was helping my, my wife and our son with their grief, but I was having trouble with mine. So I just decided to write my first book. I wrote a short novel um, mm -hmm. called the, the Courtship of Maria Rivera Peña. And that it's now out of print, but that short novel basically was like a family history that talked about the joys and pain of life. And it was very cathartic for me. And then it got published. And then I, I kept on writing short stories and those started getting published. And then... I started writing poetry. That got published. And so eventually books started coming out of me. So I was maintaining both a legal practice um, at the attorney general's office and also writing fiction and poetry and book criticism. And so that's how I got into uh, writing at, at an older age, age 39. Jump forward, um, age 60, in 20, uh, 2019, um, Trump had been in office for a couple years already. I had written a couple short stories addressing the Trump anti-immigrant, anti-you um, know, brown folk, uh, you know, platform, build the yeah. wall, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I felt like you know I wanted to address the general anti-immigrant um, sentiment of the country in in play form, 
And the reason why I thought that was because uh, a lot of my short stories had already been performed by professional actors at various book readings. And oh, really, that's cool. Yeah. Over the years, like at Beverly Hills Library, we had six of my short stories performed by six different actors. We had a director and and that was like in 2008, I think it was, something mm. like that. And I remember having an audience of like over 100 people like responding to my words. And it was different from doing a book reading. I had professional actors like breathing life into my my mm. my pieces. And I thought, boy, this is really cool. This is adding a dimension I never experienced before. And so I decided that um, I wanted to write a play. And I wanted it to address the absurdity of the anti-immigrant uh, policies. And I thought Samuel Beckett was like the perfect kind of you know, role model to write an absurd play. Mm. And so that's how it started. And I can get deeper into that, into that process. Um, but I just want to give you that. That's why I started to write, I, I, I wrote this first play. And it's just amazing to me that this is your first full length play because it's, wow. so, it's just so um, theatrical and it, it has all of these elements that um, just show like, I don't know, just like a love of live performance. And it's just fascinating mm. to me that like you, you normally or in the past have written um, works to be read on the page, but it makes sense that, you know, it's like that experience of having the audience respond mm -hmm. in real time that inspired you to yeah. write a play. And the humor, uh, when you told us that you were um, – doing comics like mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like yeah so that must have influenced and informed your the the humor and the comedy in the in the play so that's really amazing well I, I think Samuel Beckett and I know you two disagree because I've heard one of your episodes I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I, I listened to a bunch of your episodes and, and you had one on, on um, Beckett and you're talking about Endgame I studied Endgame in 1975 in, in high school my sophomore year, mm -hmm. I took a class in, in plays, in the contemporary play. And, of course, we read only white male playwrights, right? It was 1975. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and Marty and Equus and Endgame, you know, plays like that. Wonderful plays, but still very narrow in terms of who was writing. But I remember reading Endgame in 75 and thinking, this is hilarious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, and then um, when I wanted to write... Uh, waiting for Godinas, I decided, you know, I, I need to, I, I generally know about waiting for Gatto. So I'm going to buy the book. I'm going to read it. And I'm, I am going to watch as many versions of it as I could. So I watched like four or five different versions oh, online wow. and kept on reading the text. And so uh, I, I was keeping a journal at the time when I was writing this and I wrote the play in eight days. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, I have notes here that I started wow. writing on, on I'm, not, I'm sorry, not eight days. It's a little more than eight days. It's like uh, under two weeks. Um, I started writing it on July 23rd, 2019, and I finished writing it on August 4th. Wow. And it began, I was looking at the journal today um, in, in preparation um, and speaking with you folks, and um, the first entry is started waiting for Gomez. That was the original name, waiting for Gomez. Uh, my version of waiting for Gatto, <laughs> and then and then I talk about writing it and watching different versions and and going back. Um, I never mentioned Trump in the play on purpose because frankly I wanted it to be a more 
you know, a more um, uh, general um, attack on anti-immigrant um, mm-hmm. policies. Um, and then it was really funny. At one point, uh, on August um, 3rd, I finished the first draft, and I changed the name to Waiting for Godinas because I was driving to the gym at, in, at Water Village, and I saw a law office that said, um, um, you know, law offices of, um, of something Godinas. And I thought, Godinas makes more sense because the word God is in it. And that's always been one of the big, you know, debates, mm. whether or not Waiting for Gado really was waiting for God, you know, that type of thing. So I changed it. And so on August 4th, I, I wrote, finished waiting for Godina's exclamation point. And I sent out my first query. And then I just started submitting the play to just a bunch of different theaters. Wow. So, but there's a, lot of humor, there's a lot of humor in it because that's just how my, a lot of my fiction and poetry is very funny because that's just how I approach mm-hmm. life. Even when I'm dealing with very difficult issues, I think uh, humor can be one of the strongest ways to convey very difficult um very difficult things and some of my favorite plays are 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 quite you know quite funny um for example like paula vogel's how i learned to drive it it's dealing with sexual abuse but there is so much humor in it and it's a brilliant Mm -hmm. it's just a brilliant um you know uh, maneuvering of of one of the most horrible things you know child sexual sexual abuse um yet with with this kind of humor and, or, or, or Susan Laurie Parks, top dog, underdog. Oh my God. It, there's so much humor in that, but it is so devastating. (laughs) One of the most devastating. I'm kind of wondering about, um, like, do you find that absurdity and humor combined with anguish in your law practice too? Because it seems really, um, you know, like that, that's like the law can be so arbitrary. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, that's a really good point. Um, so uh, uh, right now I'm the senior assistant for the entire land law section. So I, I run a team of 45 attorneys and paralegals and we specialize in land use, environmental enforcement, and also affordable housing, including opposing Trump's um, um, attempts to, um, essentially hurt immigrants in, in, in the uh, area of housing um, mm-hmm. through, um, you know, Ben Carson, his, his HUD director. And, and so the attacks on people who are, um, who are such an important part of our society is, is really absurd. I mean, you know, on one hand, you call people who are working in the fields and, 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 and doing the jobs that no one else is going to do essential workers and then you separate them from their kids right and you put the kids in cages and Mm -hmm. i mean it is obscene and it's absurd yeah Yeah. so so you're right you're right absolutely right sam yeah and i just really feel like that's that absurdity is rooted in the language and so it makes so much sense to me that um you know, you love to write, so you went to law school. <laughs> like now, you're a lawyer and a writer. You know, mm-hmm. um, well, one yeah. of one of the absurd lines in uh, in the play that one person noted to me, um, uh, he really liked it. And in the um, it's up on um, New Play Exchange, and uh, a reviewer on the exchange said that uh, quoted one of the lines about 
how um, if if they were the, if the characters in the play if they were dogs you know they they would be um, they would living be living in a beautiful house at the beach and not deported every night you know which mm-hmm. is one of the running themes of the play a, a daily uh, or rather nightly deportation or attempt to deport um, my version of 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 Estragon, um, um, a fellow named Jesus, whose nickname is Chewy, and um, every night, um, poor poor Chewy is is kidnapped by ICE and thrown into a cage, and then um, every night he escapes because they forget to lock the cage, and he comes back to the park to be with his friend Isabel, um, whose nickname is Chavalita, and um, and and Chavalita is is my version of Vladimir. Mm-hmm. And they're waiting for this mysterious Godinas, and you know, but they don't remember why. Just very much like the same, the same, you know, trope in the uh, Beckett play. Um, it's, but but for me, it's it's this um, erasure of um, personhood um, through anti-immigrant policies. Um, you know, by locking up people in a cage, basically you're dehumanizing them. You're saying they're they're animals, mm-hmm. and so it's. For me, that that's what the erasure is in terms of who these people are. Um, that's why they can't remember so much. So you mentioned um, after you finished your play and then you mm-hmm. started sending it out, did you hear the play out loud before you're sending it out? Um, no, I didn't hear it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would read it to myself certain parts sometimes, but I had not heard it out loud. So the first time I heard it out loud was when it was accepted for the reading with um, Playwrights Arena mm. and um, a, an amazing crew of professional actors, um, some wow. of whom I had seen before, uh, worked with our director, Dr. Daphne Sikra, who is a professor at LMU here in LA, who's just a brilliant, you know, professor who who teaches um, Latinx and black theater um, and and that was the first time having professional actors read my work and uh, this play and um, I was just blown away just blown away I couldn't believe what what they did and they're so smart what I loved mm-hmm. about loved about the collaboration was we did it by zoom and we rehearsed by zoom and and dr. Um, seeker had this beautiful way of just asking the actors to ask me questions, just you know, whatever they had in their, you know, after reading the play. And every actor had just, a, you know, wonderful thoughts and ideas and questions. And and they were just such a brilliant group of people. I was so blessed to be with with such, such professionals, uh, such thoughtful people. Um, and it really, uh, in the end, what happened was after we did the reading, um, I did, I did expand the play by about 14 pages and that's a version you, you read, it added more depth to the immigration story and mm. to the, to the relationship between Chavalita and Chewy. And, and, and that's the version that is, um, um, I hope someday will be performed on stage i'm working with playwrights arena right now to do a pandemic version a shorter version of it and so i've done a, I've, I've cut it down to 45 pages and 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 worked in the pandemic and worked in wearing masks and um i've i've sent that to my director and we're getting ready and and the hope is to have that done for stage pandemic mm-hmm. safe in in uh, in a few months so what did you learn from um, that experience that led to those 14 new pages or how did that 
content emerge from your hearing it out loud and answering mm -hmm. questions? So, so in, in watching it and hearing it out loud, um, I began to see where there were thematic kind of gaps, what parts could be expanded. And, and, um, it was interesting because, uh, um, John Lawrence Rivera, who who runs, you know, uh, who founded Playwrights Arena, and Jay Z Bates, who is um, um, who um, is their um, their uh, literary um, person. I forget her exact title. Um, um, they said they wanted two areas expanded um, and and tweaked. And the moment they said those things, the two things they said, expand the immigration storyline and also expand. The relationship between Chewy and Chavalita, I knew they were right because that's exactly what I was feeling, but I could not put my finger on it. And once they confirmed that, it, it was not difficult for me to go back and and expand the play. Mm. And and then they submitted, and then I submitted that play back to them. And so they gave me an option. They said we can we can run your play as is in the future perhaps 2022 or you can do a pandemic version mm. and we could do it this year so i had a i talked to my wife and she said do the do the pandemic version and then i t <laughs> and then and then who i knows what's gonna happen in 2022 who knows 2022 <laughs> and then i talked and i talked to my director um daphne um dr seeker and she said you know both are good but uh, you know pandemic version maybe you know and basically, you know, you're right. You're saying you you're saying to yourself, I know I can get, I can do this now, this year, and you never know what's going to happen in 2022 because remember, you know, that was before the vaccine was even was rolled out. Any of the vaccines were rolled out when all this was going on um, last. When I had these meetings in August, I think it was uh, last year, and uh, the world was. There was no light at the end of the tunnel at that time, so so that's why I decided to do that. So I edited it, and I feel happy with the result. My director is reading it, and then we'll we'll get that off to our um, to the theater, and then we'll start working on um, on um, you know doing rehearsals. And uh, uh, we we are talking about uh, the end of May. That's the hope, but uh, we'll see we'll see how that how that goes. Oh, very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a very fun question we like to ask all our guests. Um, name three playwrights, living or dead, <laughs> that you would let, that you would invite to a dinner party. That's the okay, question. okay. So, so um, I'm going to break it up into to living and dead. So, I think <laughs> I, because it's you not mean, fair. Meaning three living people and then three dead people. Exactly. So, so brunch. Right. I'm going to have brunch with three dead people. <laughs> So the brunch, the brunch will be, of course, Samuel Beckett, um, Maria Irene Fornes, and August. Yeah. Oh, good choices. Yeah, and then I figure August Wilson and Maria Irene Fornes would probably be chatting it up, and then Samuel Beckett would be in a corner, just like staring at us. <laughs> Smoking. Smoking. And smoking and smoking and just kind of smiling a little bit every so often. Um, but that's okay because, um, you know, I think it'd be important to meet the man. What would you have for brunch <laughs> with these 
illustrious individual. Oh, okay. So right now I'm on a low carb diet <laughs> because I'm dealing with I'm dealing with this stupid pandemic I'm weight. But I've lost my pounds. Explain a low carb diet to Samuel Beckett. <laughs> <laughs> absurd. It's absurd. And, and so, and I have to tell you, being being uh, being Chicano uh, and going on a low carb diet has been really rough. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but um, I think. I think we can do, I can t- take a break from the low carb diet. I would love, <laughs> I would love to have all kinds of pandulce and then also some pancakes and waffles and a ton of fruit and champ- champagne and coffee. Oh my gosh, and I'm I coming. Think- I'm inviting myself <laughs> to this party. <laughs> okay. So those are the dead people and then living people. Um, so uh, I, I'm going to, I'll mention people that um that I haven't met yet or haven't um, mm. gotten to know. So I would love to have, um, you know, Paula Vogel because she's brilliant, amazing. Caridad mm-hmm. uh, uh, Svitch, mm-hmm. who is just, um, her, her, her play Red oh, Bike is just amazing, just amazing. So those two, and then, so someone I went to Stanford with, but I didn't know him there, uh, David Henry Wang. Oh, cool. Uh, he was at Stanford at the same time I was. We were, we were about the same age, but I didn't know him then. I wish I did. Um, and then, and then, if if Susan Laurie Parks happens to come by, <laughs> walking by, knocks on the door, <laughs> uh, looking, looking, you know, uh, finding the wrong house, you know, I, I will invite her in and you know offer her some uh, some of the food. Amazing. So I think. I so think you've that. chosen seven people, which I really admire. I know. <laughs> I break rule. I'm a lawyer. I so break rule. I find loophole. <laughs> oh wow, that's that's a, that's a big party. That's because here's the thing: yes. you're having a brunch with those. Um, they're they're not gonna leave. They're gonna stick right. around. They're gonna stay. The food was stay. so good at brunch, and they have like a food coma, <laughs> so they're just gonna hang out. And then you're gonna yeah. have three or four. Oh, oh yeah 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 for the yeah for dinner yeah because the living people come for right. dinner, so. So the dead people are in a coma, which makes sense, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Right, and then and then the dinner is going to be chicken enchiladas, oh um, Mexican rice and beans, and um, and then we have to switch to some kind of nice, you know, Mexican beer, you know, um, nice. and and okay, you know, people could have some. Oh, I love flan, flan for oh. dessert. Oh, that would be amazing. Oh, okay. This sounds like a really good day. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it would be so fun, and then I would secretly tape the whole thing. <laughs> I have to remember this, <laughs> and then and then I, and then I'll sell it to Netflix and make a lot of money. Is that legal to secretly tape people and then sell the video? Uh, it, it is totally illegal, but we're talking about a fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's this, my documentary of both living and dead <laughs> having uh, having a feast. Um, yes, that's funny. So a lot of um, emerging writers listen to this show or people just starting out. So what tips and tricks um, or advice do you have for people who maybe haven't written a play yet? What have you learned along the way that you think would be helpful? Interesting. Well, number one, you don't need to have an MFA. Mm. I do not have an MFA. I majored in English at Stanford. I took not one writing class. Not one intentionally because i thought i thought uh writing uh studying creative writing was going to be a frivolous thing to do and so i did not do it um which is ironic because i (laughs) i write so much now um 
but but the key thing I think for any writer, particularly if say you want to become a playwright, you got to go to plays, you got to read plays, you you also need to. This is one of the things I do. One of the reasons why I love your show: listen to and watch interviews of playwrights, mm. understand how they think, understand their approaches, because there's a billion different approaches to writing. Try to see what other people are doing. Um, and, and so, you know, I listen to you folks. I listen to Token Theater Friends. I, I, I listen to the subtext. I go on, on YouTube. I watch, you know, I type in, um, you know, Paula Vogel, for example, and I just watch interviews of her yeah. or August yeah. Wilson or whatever. And then, and then you start to absorb how they think. And then also join groups like the Dramatist Guild. Join HowlRound. Um, if you get a play written, put it up on New Play Exchange. Join join New Play Exchange. Uh, review other playwrights. Be supportive of other playwrights. And if you're a playwright of color, you know, um, and this this is one of the things that was really important to me. Um, I have read so many plays by playwrights of color in order to understand, um, you know, how they are approaching some of these issues that say a white male wouldn't approach. So I'm dealing with race all the time. I'm dealing with the issue of bigotry. I'm dealing with the issue of, of um, anti-immigrant sentiments throughout my writing, fiction and poetry, uh, sometimes up front, sometimes more in the background. So I think it's important to read those writers who connect with you and who, who can affirm mm. that offering a different lens is is you know something that can be done and can be done very successfully and 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 also finally trust trust yourself don't let someone say your story is not important whenever i I teach college i get invited to colleges um, that are teaching my stories and my my poetry and usually first generation kids in the classes almost all latinx and i tell them you know what happens if you don't write your story and they always answer correctly they say someone else will write it and it won't be Mm. right it won't be right so um you know those are my bits of advice um and it 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 can be very difficult it can be very difficult submitting your play because you know you're putting yourself out there you know uh, you put your heart and soul into a piece and but don't be afraid of rejection you can learn from rejection and I keep my rejections because they make me stronger and they make me more determined to keep on pushing forward and keep on submitting. Um, you know, and in, in, when I was in college back in the, in the late seventies, there was a phrase, don't let the turkeys get you down. And, 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 and that's like sticks in my head all the time. Don't let the turkeys get me down. Just keep on, just keep on and find those people who support you, you know, and um, they're your loved ones quite often, but sometimes not. Sometimes you have some loved ones, you know, who look at you and say, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> mm-hmm. Right? Why are you writing? Mm-hmm. Why are you doing what? And, and so, you know, you have to kind of pick your audiences, you yeah. know, <laughs> who, who you're going to share your, your writing life with. You have to be careful. My wife is very supportive. My son, who's very creative, he works for Riot Games. He's a very creative guy. He's very supportive, and um, you know, my mom is very supportive. My dad passed away last year, and he was so supportive. Oh, so my dad was a was an unpublished writer, 
he worked in a factory in Watts. And then in the mid sixties, my parents went back to college and then, you know, he got to wear a suit to work eventually. And he never got published. He wrote a novel and he wrote poetry, got rejected and he destroyed everything. Really? Wow. Yeah. He destroyed everything. And so when I became a published writer, he was so proud. And in the last few months of his life, I would visit him and my mom in Ventura, and I would just sit in their backyard and we'd talk. And rather than talking about my legal career, he wanted to talk about writing. And and my parents, I was so happy. My, my dad was able to see the Zoom performance of Waiting for Guadinas, and he loved it. Mm. And he read the text, and he, he told me, he said, you know, Somerset mom said writing plays was the hardest thing to do. And I don't know how, how you're doing it. And I said, well, it's because you and mom, you and mom gave me all, you know, you exposed us to, to literature and, and plays and, 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 and musicals. Um, I remember in 1978, um, my parents bought tickets for all of us to see Zoot Suit, mm. the first production of Zoot Suit wow. uh, at the Mark Tabor. And, and, you know, the great play by Luis mm-hmm. Valdez. Mm-hmm. And and um, Edward James almost played the Pachuco, you know, the the the, the zoot suited character who was like the kind of like the Greek chorus for the play, you know. And and so and I was nineteen when they when That's they amazing. did that. And so what and, was that experience you know, so, like for you? Well, that told me a couple of things. That told me number one, I uh, I had never seen anything like yeah. this. Any you know you know in the nineteen sixties and seventies, uh, we were so starved to see ourselves in English language television or movies starved you know Um, there's so few you know so few of us uh, represent I mean look look at West Side Story Uh, Natalie Wood is in brownface for God's sake right you know you know it's a wonderful music I love the music but but you know I mean really but that's what I grew up with Uh, and then you see Zoot Suit um, and have people in that play talk in a language that sounded like the people in my community, people in my neighborhood, people in my family. Uh, it, it was just, it was mind-blowing. And um, I eventually bought the text. I have the book published by Arthur Publical Press out of Houston. And, um, you know, uh, I, I have read that play several times. And then I saw the 2017 50th anniversary revival at the Mark Tabor. And my wife and I went, and it was so crazy. It was moving, and it was even deeper at that time because that was in the first year of the Trump presidency. Mm. And so, and so the racism depicted in Zoot Suit, you know, the the Sleep Lagoon murder trial of 1942, where basically uh, 22 young Mexican American men were railroaded in a murder trial. And it filled with filled with um, you know racist tropes. Um, um, the fact that the play still connected in 2017 yeah. just showed how how horrible the Trump language and rhetoric was. You know, mm-hmm. to to a lot of us, to a lot of us. You know, not just not not just people who have uh, roots in Latin America. But so many other people, but in particular that audience, when we were watching Zoot Suit in 2017, Trump was in our minds. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, 
So it's hard to think. I mean, so much has happened since now. I mean, since 2017 and now, and it's kind of hard mm -hmm. to like get back into what that mindset was like. Um, but you know, recently I was listening to a different podcast recorded in like January 2017, and um, I, it it really took me back. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just such a scary, toxic mm -hmm. time. Um, and now I'm like, well, little did we know <laughs> yeah. what was mm -hmm. coming. Um, wow. Yeah. But just kind mm -hmm. of the shock that we all felt and, um, and the fear, you know? Yeah. I wrote a piece for the New York times in 2018 and they titled it. The dystopia is here. And it was about this family separation, yeah. um, yeah. program and, and basically how, a short story I wrote in 2017, right after the election, um, is essentially that story predicted the family separation program. Wow. And in that story, it takes place slightly in the future. Trump has imposed martial law. He's built his wall and he has set up family separation centers along the border where the kids can say goodbye through plexiglass. And then the parents are, you know, whisked away in black buses um, and, and, and the kids are sent to, sent to other places in the United States. And so when that started happening, basically without, without, you know, the, the wall actually being built, I wrote a piece for New York times and, and they called it the dystopia is here because I talked about, you know, uh, for a lot of people under Trump, um, you know, the, uh, you know, a dystopia is basically where people are dehumanized by, you know, by the government or by other circumstances. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's what happened. That's what happened. I mean, de dehumanization of immigrants has been going on from the very beginning. You know, anti-Asian, anti-Jewish, anti-anti, you know, any group you can, anti-Irish, anti-Italian, on and on and on and on, right? That's been going on forever. But it really felt like the country had been improving somewhat. But then Trump happened and mm. realized all that was just below, yeah. was just below the surface. And I think for many of us, we already knew it was there because I had heard racist stuff from as early as I can remember. I remember a high school football coach who was also a history teacher called me a stupid Mexican Whoa. in front of my classmates. Oh, you know, yeah. I, um, a few years ago, I was on the Amtrak. I was stopped by ICE. I was asked where I was born. And I, the ICE agent didn't ask anyone else around me who were all white. And, um, you know, so, you know, at one time I was carrying my son and my wife is, is blonde and she has, you know, um, you know, light eyes, right? My son, my son is fair skinned and has hazel eyes. And one day I was walking out of, of a department store holding my son in a baby bag and I was stopped by security. Is that your child? Oh my God, that's just like a punch to the gut. Yeah. Right, right. So, you know, but these are things all three of us have felt mm -hmm. in different ways, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We all three. And then my son, you know, who's a wonderful young man, he came out when he was 12. He's 30 now. So he's Jewish, Chicano, and gay, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he has, he, you know, when he came out when he was age 12, you know, we, we told him, you know, you don't have to... You, you're only in seventh grade, you know, just, 
you know, we love you. Don't worry about it. But you don't have to tell everyone. Of course, he told everyone after he told us. And then he got disowned by almost all his male wow. friends. Yeah. And he and he and and some oh. of the ugliest hate words that you can imagine, you know, thrown at him. But because we raised someone who's proud of himself, you know, he he was able to get through it. And, um, you know, um, but but, you know, that kind of bigotry is, um, you know, it's always there. It will always be there. You know, two steps forward, one step back. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, life for our son is better now because he can get married someday. Right. Um, You know, 20 years ago. No. Or, you know, 10 years ago, seven years ago, whatever it was. So, so I guess I'm, this makes me wonder your thoughts on, you know, what's the role that fiction and poetry and, you know, theater can play um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a time when there's just so much suffering and cruelty? Um, you know, I know a lot of lawyers who are like, this, I'm doing the real work. <laughs> you know, like, they might not say that yeah. directly, but they're like, you know, the, I'm actually helping people. Um, so, you know, as someone who d- does both things, what, like, what's mm-hmm. the role that writing or writers can have in improving this kind of, or, or mitigating maybe this kind of bigotry and, well, it's not even mitigating. So, so you know the, the you know hashtag Oscar so white, right? Okay, so so representations of of folks of different backgrounds and TV and movies and and plays and literature that's really important. Having accurate and and complete depictions that um, are are not filled with stereotypes, because frankly, when you grow up. And all you see of yourself is a stereotype in a film or in a book, or or you're not even mentioned mm-hmm. in any of the reading list. I mean, your people and your 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 life isn't even acknowledged in the ten books you have to read for class. You know, the ten novels right. you got to read, right? Um, that that is debilitating. You know, it's, it it kind of reminds me when when um, um, Barack Obama was elected president, you know, and, and you know, there are little black kids saying, I can be president. Because mm-hmm. look, look, look at that. Look, there's a black president. And so when someone, when I, when I teach classes, I will always have at least one student say, you know, I've never read a book where I recognized the grandmother and the sister and the brother, and I recognized the neighborhood. And I recognize, you know, that is, that kind of acknowledgement goes a long way and I think goes deep into our bones and allows us to be fuller people. Um, you know, I, I, I know my son um, in, in his work uh, with um, video game design really works hard to try to push storylines and ideas um, that are, um, you know, open and and not filled with stereotypes when it comes to the LGBTQ and Latinx and and other communities. You know, he's very mindful of uh, trying to create um, a world that is much more inclusive because mm-hmm. that means that really does mean something. 
So anyway, that's mine. Yeah. I, it is important. You know. It is important. The arts, the arts and representation of the arts is as important as it really is anything, anything else that we do. Yeah, definitely. <sighs> I'm just like, my heart is so full. <laughs> I'm just like hearing, <laughs> that, that hearing, hearing <laughs> thing. I mean, like this is, yeah, this is so, everything that you just said is just, amen, amen. Um, I'm just, Aww. my heart is full and I'm just so, um, I'm proud. LA, I'm LA proud right now. <laughs> All right. LA proud. <laughs> yeah. All right. So before we move on to glistens, um, where can our listeners find you? Okay. So I am a new play exchange. And uh, for those people who are playwrights, you, you probably know what new play exchange is, but if not, just Google it. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Olivas Dan. Mm-hmm. And also my website is danielolivas.com. And my website is very old fashioned and clunky because I designed it 22 years ago and I have not updated it. And my son is so angry with me because <laughs> it is so ugly, but it, all the links work. <laughs> the picture is finally updated. Oh, so so uh, I used to have beautiful hair and now I don't, but um, um, it is what it is. And I'm still standing and I'm, you know, uh, you know, a low carb dieting. So I've, uh, I lost a few pounds. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting better. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, oh, oh. Uh, I, and I also want to, uh, to note that, um, as I mentioned, I joined HowlRound. So I have a, a, a bio page there, um, a dramatist guild as well. So, you know, I do, I strongly urge people who are beginning to, um, enter the playwriting world to look at those kind of, um, um, platforms uh, they're really important and they're very good for support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. And we'll be sure to link all the amazing links <laughs> uh, on our <laughs> show notes. All right. Mm-hmm. So, Glisten. So, Glisten's the end of the show where we like to share our favorite uh, Glistens of the week. Uh, it can be anything you've learned, a headline, music, honestly, literally anything that um, stood out to you. Um, Sam, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so I just started reading H's for Hawk. Um, it's this book uh, I've been hearing about for years um, by Helen McDonald about her process of grieving and also learning to train a hawk. Um, hmm. So her father died really suddenly and um, – kind of in the in the following year she she had always been really interested in hawks but she um adopted or bought I don't know got procured this hawk and is kind of writing about um learning to understand it and train it Mm -hmm. um and it's just it's really really good I just started reading it but I'm really enjoying the language and um just reading about her connection with this wild animal. It's so beautiful. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's my glisten. Um, my glisten is Decomposition Notebook. Have you guys, do you know this? Yes. No, <laughs> I just, no, no, what is it? Oh, it's, it's just this notebook that has such cool designs. Um, it's made <laughs> recycled. Uh, it's like very eco-friendly and made by recycled paper and things. And um, I've been just... I kind of, 
started collecting them. So which covers do you have? There's so um, many good ones. Yeah, I have um, the Big Sur. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was like, and I have one with all the cats. <laughs> but you know, I'm, I, you know, I, it's kind of like I just started. I just started noticing myself because you know I. I need notebooks and then like writing and then I fill them up and I'm like, I just been kind of sticking with decomposition because before it was moleskin for a really long time because it's just, I like the hardy and, and I could just carry it around. But now I like this colorful designs and now that you're um, not going anywhere, you don't have to carry it around. I need, I need visual, I need some visual stimulation. <laughs> Look at things. Um, yeah. So yeah, I really love decomposition. Um, yeah, that's all. Just a shout out to decomposition notebook. So, do you write your plays first by hand? Um, I do a lot of just taking a lot of notes, but you don't have notes everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes, maybe right before I go to bed, if I'm like constantly thinking about one thing, I'll just quickly journal it before I go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I have, I use my notes on my MacBook as a way to organize all my notes that I have to kind of put it all together. It's like, I guess it's my filing system. And then, but Mm -hmm. I have a lot of notebooks in just that, just all around me taking notes um, from like watching Mm -hmm. show or a movie or something stood out. And I'll kind of like jot that down. If it inspires something and I quickly jot it down. Mm -hmm. Wow. I like that. (laughs) What's your glisten, Daniel? Hmm. I want to give you two glistens because I'm cheating oh my gosh, all the time. breaking all the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I'm breaking every rule. So, so my first glisten is a shout out to Playwrights Arena and to Circle X Theater, these two um, you know, uh, local theaters who have given me and so many other writers support as we try to tell our stories. And God bless them. They're, I love them all so much. And I, I hope someday I can actually meet them in person mm. um but um you know small theaters have suffered um actors and writers and and everyone who supports you know um creating plays have suffered so much during the pandemic and yeah but people are bored and supporting each other and so i say that they're a wonderful glisten in my life the other glisten is my wife and I saw, we watch a lot of Netflix and Hulu these days, you know, right? Mm-hmm. And we watched um, United States versus Billie Holiday. Oh, is that uh, good? I really want to see that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's amazing. Screenplay by Susan Laurie Parks. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Right. Oh. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't know it. I, we're watching this and we're just blown away by the acting and by the directing and then, and but, and it felt like there were parts of it felt like a play to me, and parts. Of, and I was wondering, this is interesting. Some, some of the fantasy kind of moments that this feels like you could see this on stage. And then, sure enough, Susan Laurie Parks. So, um, her script of the um, screenplay exists online. You can actually get mm, it. Cool. So I'm going to. It's it's only 80 pages long. Even though the movie, I think, is two hours, but there's a lot of um, singing scenes. Um, so I think that uh, I'm going to, um, download, um, the screenplay and read it. I'm just really curious. And I know a lot of playwrights have made that leap from stage to screen. And I'm just, it's, you know, it it is a different discipline, but at the same time, you're still using the same kind of muscles. So I'm just curious what you did. So I want to read that. Nice. You heard it here here first, folks. Daniel's going to write a screenplay. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I have a screenplay, but I haven't produced it yet. Mm. I, I did a screenplay years ago. It's, it was published by a literary journal. I did a screenplay. I adapted my first book, The Courtship of Maria Rivera Peña, and I've submitted it to um, a couple contests. So, um, uh, again, trying to depict the Mexican-American community mm. in an accurate, honest way. It takes place in L.A., 1927, and is based on my um, grandparents' migration from, LA, from Mexico to L.A. Oh, around cool. That time. That's awesome. Cool. And I want to thank both of you so oh much. Oh my gosh. Thank you for thank coming you. on our show. Yeah. You're both so generous and kind. And I love listening to your, to your podcast and, and your podcast always make me laugh and think, and I love it when you two disagree. I just <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being a listener and uh, sharing your play with us. And Oh, my um, pleasure. Yeah. We can't wait to see what you write next. Uh, fingers crossed on my newest play. I'm working with Circle X Theater on that one. So, uh, in fact, the Zoom presentation of that play is planned for later this year, probably June. That's my guess. They're trying to figure it out right now. Oh, oh great. Well, you'll have to, yeah, keep us posted and we'll link it out. Sure. Yeah. yeah that'd be great. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening. <laughs>